Good morning, all. Uh, my name is Bjorn Shellstrom. I'm the head of the European Parliament Office here in the United Kingdom. And on behalf of the Embassy of the United States, the European Institute at UCL, and the European Parliament, I want to welcome you to today's event. Uh, the EP office here in the UK has arranged somewhat 40 events this fall. This is certainly one of the events that we've been looking most forward to. That is not only because we have such a great subject to discuss today, how we can cooperate together in order to achieve greater transparency and openness, but also because we have such a great panel. And thank you to the Embassy, thank you to the UCL for that, and thank you to all of you for coming here today. Just two more things before handing over the floor to today's keynote speaker. The emergency exit out there and to the left. And immediately after today's seminar at 12 o'clock, uh, you'll be able to enjoy the screening of the Nobel Prize ceremony that takes place, either on that screen or on the screen out there in, in the reception. Um, once again, thank you all. And uh, over to you, Mrs. Barbara Stevenson. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming. I'm, I'm Barbara Stevenson. I'm the Deputy Ambassador at the U.S. Embassy. We're really excited about this conference, and I want to thank our partners, the European Parliament Office, UCL, for joining us to stage this event. This event provides a great opportunity for us, the United States, the European Union, and the UK, to come together to consider how best to lead a global effort to promote transparency. I see us as natural partners in creating a global level playing field to drive up transparency and accountability. I think this is really important. I think the time to do it is now, and if we don't lead this effort, who will? Efforts to promote transparency have focused on many different areas. Some of the work is in the domestic arena, making our governments and how they operate more transparent to our citizens. For instance, shortly after coming into office, President Obama issued a memorandum on transparency and open government that committed to making the federal government more efficient and effective. In 2011, he worked with global partners to launch the Open Government Partnership. The OGP seeks to secure concrete commitments from governments to promote transparency empower citizens, fight corruption, and harness new technologies to strengthen governance. The 58 countries who have signed up to be members of the Open Government Partnership, and I have to say that exceeds our wildest expectations, um, have all produced work plans for increasing transparency. And I think those work plans create an enormous opportunity for us as donor nations to work alongside those countries to help them achieve those plans. The UK is currently co-chairing the Open Government Partnership, and it's working, for, working to further its vision of governments that are more accessible and accountable to their citizens. The UK also holds the G8 presidency this year, and Prime Minister Cameron has announced that transparency will be a core focus, supporting his idea of a golden thread of conditions that enable open economies and open societies to drive prosperity and growth for all. Those conditions include rule of law, the absence of conflict and corruption, strong property rights and institutions. Now, what we want to focus on today is a specific slice of the transparency agenda. How are companies 
both foster and benefit from transparency in third countries, particularly those that are still developing their own rules and systems of governance. Transparency is an inherently challenging topic to address, in part because it cuts across so many disciplines and work streams and equities. It touches, of course, on anti-bribery rules, which the US, the UK, and the EU have all established and enforced for our own companies. It also touches on corporate social responsibility, but in a broader way than in the limited sense of doing a worthy project like building a school. What we hope to do today is encourage a dialogue on how the US, the EU, and the UK can work together to promote transparent business practices in countries that want to compete in the global marketplace but are being held back because companies don't have a sense of legal certainty or confidence that contracts will be enforced fairly and impartially. The issue also has an impact on the assistance we provide developing countries. The US and the EU members spend about $100 billion per year in international development assistance, which can have a positive or a negative impact on corruption levels, depending on how it's spent. We'll hear more about this issue this morning from development experts, but let me share here my own belief that focusing on increased transparency, such as helping countries fulfill the transparency work plans they've done under the Open Government Partnership, is one sure way to know that that development assistance is accruing to the right side of the ledger, reducing corruption rather than increasing it. So why pursue a transparency agenda? First, it's the right thing to do. Increased transparency helps emerging economies expand and entrench the kind of open, accountable governments that bring better living standards and more prosperous, empowered citizens. For the purposes of sparking discussion, I'd like to put forward my view that the impact for increased transparency is biggest in the area of bookkeeping. When the books are crystal clear on where government's resources come from, whether that's taxes or oil or minerals, and how those resources are spent, the benefits are enormous. A thousand problems are headed off at the pass. This, in my view, is the big prize for increased transparency and where we should focus our efforts. Every bribe that is paid or government contract that is granted based on connections rather than open competition is money and know-how lost to the economy. Short-term profits went out over long-term well-being. Corruption and lack of transparency drive away companies that follow ethical business practices. In my conversations with American companies whose business practices I most admire, I hear that they are simply writing off deeply corrupt com com countries, declining to do business there at all. Thus, ethical companies whose presence contributes to an improving spiral are being replaced by less ethical actors. The more space that is available for unethical companies to pay bribes, fix contracts, trample on both the environment and workers' rights, the less effectively we achieve our broader development goals, making development progress enormously difficult, no matter how much money our citizens devote to the problem. So that's the first reason. It's the right thing to do. The second reason is we need growth, and the economic future of American and European companies depends upon the ability of our companies to compete effectively in the global marketplace. The larger number, the number of countries that 
prepare, that provide a level playing field for contracting and the greater the value they place on companies with a track record for ethical business practices, the more competitive our companies will be, the more places they will be able to work. Just to put this in quantitative terms, it's estimated that U.S. companies passed up about $27 billion in 2009 because they refused to pay bribes. But as Secretary Clinton says, quote, this is not merely a matter of economics. It goes to the central question of the values we embrace. Openness, freedom, transparency, and fairness have meaning far beyond the business realm. If you think back to the beginning of the Arab Spring almost two years ago, you'll remember that it all started when a Tunisian street vendor lit himself on fire in protest at the corruption of local officials and his inability to find redress. Frustration at being shaken down repeatedly by corrupt cops led him to end his life and sparked a revolution in the Arab world. Corruption inevitably and understandably undermines people's confidence in their government. However, by promoting transparency, not only through traditional government-to-government -government diplomacy, but also, also through commercial diplomacy, we can help shape the workforce and work processes in developing countries. This then raises citizens' expectations and aspirations, and ultimately the quality of governance itself. As a European colleague noted to me recently, efforts to get democratic accountable governance to take root are helped immensely by workers who have the experience of being hired on merit and rewarded for good performance. These efforts are helped by having honest, respected companies compete transparently to win contracts that they then deliver on. Responsible companies ensure that natural resources are not wasted and that the roads, schools, hospitals, and communications networks actually get built, and to a high standard. Every positive example bolsters the idea that embracing transparency brings meaningful results, that there are rules and they will be followed, that it's safe to put capital at risk. That in turn opens up more space for those who operate ethically while closing the space available to unethical actors. I saw an excellent example of transparency uh, at work for myself when I was U.S. Consul General in Northern Ireland in the early 2000s. The local construction industry faced steady threats from paramilitary gangs. <clears throat> Pay protection money or we'll vandalize your, burning site, your, bu your building site. Most construction companies just paid the protection money, entrenching the practice and strengthening the paramilitary gangs with each payment. The solution? A new reporting requirement. Construction companies were required to list each payment, each protection payment. This transparency measure dramatically changed the, exchange, the, the conversation and sharply curtailed the protection racket. As a local foreman explained that there was no way to hide the payment, that reporting it was mandatory, and it would cost him his job. The thugs backed off. Transparency is very, very powerful. Every country has its own unique situation, but if we, Governments and companies work together to promote and spread our own high standards of domestic business practices around the world. We can create a virtuous circle. <coughs> the more we encourage emerging nations to embrace transparency, the more we all, the citizens of that country, honest businesses, benefit. At the same time, transparency and compliance becomes mark, become marks of quality that deliver financial gain. 
Quality should demand a premium in the marketplace, and transparent business practices set a standard that distinguishes our companies as having a superior product and governments as having a superior market. Not only that, good business practices also have a great effect on the way our own nations are seen throughout the world. When our companies flourish abroad by doing business the right way, the American or European brand flourishes. In fact, as Secretary Clinton says, for many people around the world, the most direct contact they will ever have with the United States is through American businesses, through brand, name and companies, brand names and companies of every size that do business abroad. That's how they learn what we stand for and who we are and what our aspirations are. So this is important, not just to the bottom line, but to our common interest and our shared values and to the future of our global leadership. We, the U.S. and Europe, want to set the rules with the help of like-minded partners. And this is a particularly opportune moment for us to show genuine leadership on transparency. For the first time since perhaps the fall of the Berlin Wall, a huge swath of countries all over the world, Burma, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, elsewhere, are undergoing profound transformations. In many cases, they're transitioning to market economies and democratic political systems. In some cases, they're building governments from scratch. Although our companies are often in competition in the global marketplace, we're no longer the only options available to emerging and transitional countries. But I believe that on a level playing field, we are still the best option for providing well-managed, high-quality, and efficient delivery of goods and services while fostering development and growth. We need to work together to ensure that our companies are able to compete based on their merits. The question is, how? Well, first I would say by sharing our experiences of what has worked. So let me start with an experience. I was ambassador to, American ambassador to Panama before here, and that's a country with enormous problems, but with enormous promise, but that struggles with corruption, at least in certain sectors. During my tenure, the World Bank reduced the space for corruption by helping the government set up an online government procurement process, Panama Compra. I understand this is easily replicable in other countries striving to increase the transparency of their government procurement. When bribes cannot be paid for major government contracts, ethical companies get the level playing field we're seeking, and citizens get the benefit of having all the allocated funds go to building the road or the school or the hospital. In addition to transparent government procurement processes, ethical companies appreciate knowing the commercial laws they'll be operating under, having a clear, effective commercial code. My colleague, John Bridenstine, from the U.S. Department of Commerce, will describe later this morning the commercial law development program that helps countries make needed commercial legal reforms. U.S. Commerce has already partnered with UK's DFID, but I suspect that there's still more scope to expand this program. Those reformed legal codes then need to be enforced, and that is, of course, a major challenge. I recently heard about a mentoring program whereby senior British judges serve as mentors for judges in Commonwealth countries, seeking to uphold the law but facing pressure from powerful domestic interests. Being able to call on the senior British judge to discuss the matter has more than once tipped the balance in the favor of justice. I suspect this kind of legal exchange could also be expanded. 
We're also going to be hearing today about the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative. This is an exceptionally important and promising area in which industry and governments have agreed to adhere to more transparent business practices to the benefit of all the parties involved. The European Union is doing crucially important work in this area as they consider strong, a strong new law on transparency and disclosure in accounting for the extractive industries. I look forward to hearing more about that this morning from the European Parliament representative. Friends who work in development, including the Gates Foundation, tell me that this European Parliament draft law, which matches and in some ways exceeds the provisions of America's Cardin-Luger Amendment of the Dodd-Frank Act, will require companies listed on the SEC to publish what they pay to foreign governments. <laughs> this would help increase transparency of vast sums of financial resources transferred to developing countries and decrease the likelihood of money being siphoned off from the sale of natural resources. Citizens of those countries would be able to easily spot a diversion of funds and instead push for that money to be spent on vital services like schools, roads, and hospitals. If that's not what the cycle of democratic accountability looks like at its best, I don't know what is. Our goal today is for Europe and the U.S. to work more closely to share ideas and coordinate efforts to achieve what we all agree are noble outcomes. Enriching lives by empowering citizens and improving living standards, promoting democracy, improving business environments, leading to real and sustainable economic development. Our countries must lead the way by working together and by agreeing to follow the same rule book. And the responsibility to advance our vision for greater transparency lies with all of us represented here today. Governments, business, NGOs, academia, aid agencies, all of us. The challenge is huge but the reward of a more open, transparent global marketplace is equally huge. I wish you every success for a series of productive discussions. And it's now my pleasure to introduce Sean Donnan, who is going to introduce and moderate panel one. Thank you, Sean. It is on. Uh, th many thanks, Barbara, and many thanks to the U.S. Embassy and the European <laughs> Union Parliament Office uh, here for asking me to moderate today. As Barbara said, I'm Sean Donnan. I'm the world news editor of the Financial Times, which means uh, I oversee the team of editors and correspondents around the world who look after our, all of our non-UK economic and political news, which I hope all of you read religiously every day <laughs> and page huge sums for. Uh, the, um, uh, that means I spend a lot of my time thinking about transparency uh, in a strange way. Uh, the, uh, just in thinking about this over the weekend, uh, it is pretty hard to think of a major story going on in the world today, a major theme going on in the world today uh, that we are attacking that doesn't have some kind of transparency element uh, to it. Uh, there's three that I immediately thought of. Uh, over the weekend, and there's three. These are stories that uh, I'm interested in, partly because we're not done with them yet. Uh, when I say a story, I say it in, uh, in journalese. I mean, of course, the theme that we're going to keep attacking rather than a single article. Uh, the first is the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, we are here in part uh, because of that crisis. Uh, is that a veto? <laughs> um, the um, uh, we are here uh, 
because that crisis, as Gillian Tett uh, of the FT and others have written, was in part a crisis of transparency. Uh, and uh, blind faith in financial engineering certainly played a part. Uh, but we've been talking about the Dodd-Frank law, which started off as a financial regulation law and has quickly moved into other realms, uh, into extractive industries and so on. So in a way, we have moved from the US subprime housing market to Nigerian oil production, if you will. Um, the second story that I'm continually fascinated by is China, uh, as many of you are, and the Chinese leadership transition we've seen here. I'd argue uh, that, in fact, uh, we have saw more transparency this year in the Chinese leadership transition than we've ever seen. That's not saying much, uh, but uh, the Bo Xilai case uh, and other cases certainly uh, taught us what the impact of transparency could be in China. And the third and final one is the story of tax, uh, which you all have an interest in, and we at the FT and others have watched with great interest uh, the political Ferrari around Starbucks uh, and the tax it pays in the UK most recently, but that is really uh, not where the story ends. That's a global story. It's one that we're going to see a lot more of uh, in the years to come. It shouldn't be a surprise that with all the fiscal holes uh, that have been left behind uh, by uh, government crisis, uh, rescue efforts, that governments are looking to plug the gaps, and that they see corporations and the tax they pay as a potential target. Uh, I suspect we're going to be writing a lot more in the coming years about closing corporate tax loopholes and crackdowns on tax shelters, and I suspect the word transparency is going to come up a lot in that discussion. That is enough from me. Uh, you're not here to hear me speak. You're here to hear the eminent people on these two panels we have this morning speak and uh, to tackle this great subject. Uh, a little bit later, you're going to be hearing about the government uh, perspective, what is happening in <coughs> Europe, uh, the US, uh, and the UK. But this morning, we're going to start first with uh, the four panelists you see before you. We're going to go left to right. Uh, I will introduce them uh, more fully as uh, when it comes uh, to be their time to speak. Uh, we're going to give them each about 10 minutes uh, to speak, and then we'll open up the floor to a Q&A uh, and what I hope will be some intelligent questions from the audience. Uh, we'll start off with uh, Janine Juggins. Uh, she is the global head of tax of Rio Tinto. Uh, we'll move on to Tom Bishop. He is the executive chairman of URS's operations in Europe, the Middle East, and South Asia. Uh, next to me is Karina Litvak, who until very, very recently was the head of governance and sustainable investment at FNC. Uh, and down the end of the table there is Dermot O'Sullivan, uh, who is a fellow for the Open Society, uh, looking now at uh, the impact of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative uh, on two very interesting company, uh, countries, uh, Liberia and East Timor. Uh, we'll start with Janine here. Uh, Janine is the Global Head of Tax of Rio Tinto, as I said, and if you Google her, it won't take you long to find out that she is a big player in these discussions on transparency. She has made presentations to the parliament here, uh, august bodies such as the OECD and the IMF. She's at the center of this uh, discussion. Uh, she, uh, which is a long way to come when you graduated in French with German from Manchester University. Uh, she subsequently trained as a chartered accountant with KPMG. She's been with Rio Tinto for 10 years uh, now. Janine, do you want to kick us off? 
Well, thank you uh, for inviting me here today as a panelist. Um, transparency in global in uh, investment is a very important issue, especially now when matters of corporate governance and transparency are receiving unprecedented media coverage and attracting attention from politicians and policymakers alike. Companies in the extractive sector, like Rio Tinto, have long recognised the importance of transparency and the key role it plays in helping to battle corruption and fostering the right environment for good, sustainable investments. Rio Tinto is a signatory to the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which was established in 2003, and our company has provided voluntary reporting of tax and wider economic contributions for a number of years. It may come as a surprise, but the extractive sector actually leads transparency in corporate reporting. The top five companies in a recent Transparency International report were all extractives. Rio Tinto was ranked second after Statoil. And last year, the PwC Building Public Trust Award recognised Rio Tinto for the best tax reporting in the FTSE 100 category, and specifically the most transparent disclosure of tax strategy, tax performance, and the wider impact of tax. This Tax is Paid report, you can find on our website, presents key data on tax payments, revenues, and earnings, showing our economic contribution to public finances by country, level of government, and by form of tax. So why are the extractive sector leaders in this area? The simple answer is that it makes good business sense. Our investments are made in the multi-millions, often billions of dollars. They're spent upfront with the returns achieved only over a long period of time and at risk to changes in commodity prices, <coughs> geotechnical risk, as well as the regulatory environment. If you think about it, our investments may outlive several governments. In many cases, the related investments needed uh, for a mining development involve infrastructure such as railways and ports, and so can provide the catalyst for broader economic development. Good corporate governance and proactive transparent engagement is essential to optimize and sustain these broad economic benefits that are generated by successful investments and to contribute to a stable investment environment that will stand the test of time. In my role as Global Head of Tax at Rio Tinto, I see transparency as a common thread that runs across all aspects of our business. Management of our tax responsibilities is no exception to this, and this isn't an accident. The governance framework and principles that we at Rio Tinto apply to the management of tax are consistent with the way in which we do business, right from our procurement policies to the way in which mining investments are made. It has to be that way, embedded in the heart of company culture, so that it's applied automatically and consistently. So at the beginning of 2011, when we issued our new taxes paid report, which went, went much further, we chose to make this change voluntarily, and it did cause some consternation. Why did we do this? Well, in 2010 and in the early part of 2011, the landscape was evolving. 
there was an increased emphasis on transparency in all aspects of corporate and political life. The Dodd-Frank Bill, requiring disclosure of payments to governments by US issuers in the extractive sector, became law. And corporate tax issues began to be reported in the media, some of it confusing things like cash taxes with the accounting charge and the concept of deferred tax and the general principles that determine in which countries multinational groups pay their taxes and allegations of widespread transfer pricing abuse. Put simply, all large businesses were being given a bad name and we simply needed to do a better job of engaging in the debate. At Rio Tinto, we were concerned in particular about the plethora of competing initiatives around disclosure of tax payments to governments, that they were being debated in a vacuum, and the risk that the right balance may not be struck between meeting the anti-corruption objective and the compliance burden placed on businesses. We do want a win-win result. So we decided to take a lead and demonstrate what a voluntary initiative can deliver in the hope of making a meaningful contribution to the way forward. Back then, as now, we desperately need a well-informed discussion that is more likely to produce constructive, beneficial outcomes that will withstand the test of time. Transparency is a prerequisite for fostering that constructive, productive engagement and debate. This is as essential to promoting sustainable global investment as it is in the tax policy arena. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jane. Um, our next uh, speaker is Tom Bishop. Uh, Tom is the executive chairman of URS's operations in Europe, the Middle East, and South Asia. Uh, he leads the company's expansion plans across the region. Uh, he joined the group in 2000, in, sorry, in 1986, uh, and he's overseen a number of complex infrastructure projects, including high-speed rail projects in Germany, transportation projects in the UK, and aviation projects in Hong Kong and Portugal. But very interestingly, Tom began his career as a design engineer with the US Navy uh, in designing nuclear submarines, is that right? Uh, so, uh, he is uh, and uh, is a uh, was a director of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission as well, responsible for overseeing nuclear plant design, construction, and operation in the Western United States. He's a past national chairman and a fellow of the Construction Management Association of America, and has served as a trustee of the San Francisco Bay Area. Economic Institute. He is a born and bred San Franciscan. Um, Tom, thanks very much. Thank you, Sean. Um, I'd like to frame my remarks um, uh, on transparency in light of uh, the URS business so you understand uh, where our viewpoints are coming from. Um, not a lot of people have heard about URS, so I'll spend one paragraph on that. We, we are a uh, multidisciplined engineering, construction, and technical services firm. We have nearly 60,000 employees and we operate in uh, a little less than 50 countries around the globe. Our revenues are about <coughs> 11 billion US dollars, about 7 billion uh, uh, pounds. Uh, we operate in five sectors. Uh, the largest sector is working for national governments. It's about 40% of our work. Uh, another 20% is for our oil and gas uh, clients. 
uh, and then that's followed by infrastructure, which is about another 20% of, of our business, and then finally, um, industrials and power uh, for each form about 10% uh, of our business. We are committed to business practices, operations, and projects that improve the economic, environmental, and societal outcomes in the locations in which we work. Our expertise is valued uh, by our multinational clients and, and supports their sustainability and their governance initiatives. Internally to URS, um, our government governance and sustainability programs are routinely reviewed by third parties and the findings are used to continually upgrade our practices relative uh, to our work in the countries in which we operate. We do see transparency as an integral part of the fight against corruption and we believe that fighting against corruption is an inherent responsibility of all of us involved in business and particularly those of us that are involved in multinational businesses. Transparency has, is a key feature of anti-corruption compliance. But to be more effective, we believe transparency must be preceded by a few more fundamental actions. Number one, we think it's important to define responsible behavior in environmental, social, and corporate governance. And because of our um, view across several different countries, we see that as interpreted quite differently. And so we think that definition is quite important. Secondly, uh, we believe it's important to engage and ed educate all parties uh, on these necessary behaviors. Thirdly, we believe that a means for achieving these standards has to be provided where they don't already exist. And fourthly, as uh, Ambassador Stevenson mentioned, we believe it's important to develop and maintain adequate books and records as these become the foundation for transparency in reporting. And then lastly is to subject the entire process to a periodic and independent review. Uh, there are many steps, sometimes very challenging steps, uh, to successfully execute each of the aforementioned actions. For example, engaging and educating the parties of a given project can be much more complex than one would originally envision. Educating our own employees is one of the easier steps, but assuring that our partners, our subconsultants, uh, and others share our vision of anti-corruption behaviors can sometimes be more challenging. Let me turn to the drivers uh, in this case for achieving responsible environmental, social, and corporate governance and the related transparency. These drivers, of course, go well beyond uh, good intentions alone. The successful elimination of corruption and the illumination of business behaviors are enhanced by constructive and coordinated laws, regulations, and international agreements. For example, the UK Bribery Act and its American cousin, the US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, provide definitions of acceptable behaviors. Thankfully, with respect to the American FCPA, guidance has recently been, been issued only last month by the U.S. Justice Department and the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that is very helpful in elaborating on the details of this process. 
These additional guidance details provide those of us who are on the sharp end of the anti-corruption spear examples of what to look for and how to assess whether a particular individual or entity is or has behaved in an unacceptable manner. We also have the very helpful 2012 update of the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index, something we use in evaluating our partners, some consultants, and even our prospective clients. One of the actions we are taking coincident with this new guidance is to implement a multi-stage due diligence process of our partners, of our subcontractors, our subconsultants, and our prospective clients. The magnitude of the required due diligence is determined by a 20-point corruption evaluation. And depending on the outcome of that evaluation, the due diligence may span from none further being required to a level only involving online compliance evaluations, to, to elevated third-party reviews, or to full independent consultant due diligence examinations. This enhanced process does take more time and costs more money, but we believe it is essential to maintaining our high standards, protecting ourselves and our clients, and demonstrating compliance with the letter and spirit of governing laws. So what does this mean for transparency? Transparency, in our view, is dramatically improved for our operating management and those overseeing our activities, our board of directors, our independent auditors, and those clients that routine, routinely audit our activities. But getting back to other drivers of the business, um, we've already mentioned the uh, recent update of the Dodd-Frank uh, Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. Um, some of these changes that were issued just in August contain several specialized disclosure provisions, uh, including disclosures related to conflict minerals, those minerals uh, originating from the Congo and the bordering countries, and payments to foreign and domestic uh, government officials uh, of any sort. Such transactions now need to be documented in annual reports. These new requirements add a new level of transparencies in these selected areas. As to transparency and our employees and our subconsultants, the people that are actually working in the field, we require them to comply with all applicable laws in every country in which they travel and in which they work, and specifically noted are the laws prohibiting bribery, corruption, or the conduct of business with specific individuals, companies, or countries. The fact that in some countries certain laws are not enforced, or that violation of these laws is not always subject to public criticism is not acceptable to us as an excuse for non-compliance. In addition, we expect our employees to comply with U.S. and U.K. laws, rules and regulations that govern the conduct of business by its citizens and corporations outside their boundaries, including those related to transparency. I will close with a conclusion from a recent U.K. survey conducted by ICM, this was released uh, in late October. That survey revealed that the majority of those surveyed believe that businesses divulge only what they need to do for regulatory purposes. They divulge only what they need to do for regulatory purposes. 
If this is so, then revising the laws and regulations in the international arena in a constructive and a coordinated manner, such as was recently done with the Dodd-Frank Act in the United States, may be an expeditious way to globally elevate the transparency agenda. Thank you. Thank you, Uh, Karina Litvak was, until very, very recently, uh, the Head of Governance and Sustainable invest, uh, Investment at FNC. She holds French and Canadian nationalities. She joined FNC in 1998. And there she directed a team that handled the share voting and shareholder dialogue activities on all global portfolios. She also represented FNC externally uh, on a number of UK and global socially responsible uh, investment in, or investing initiatives. Uh, those include the Association of British Insurers Investment Committee, the Board of the Extractive uh, Industries Transparency Initiative, which you've heard about, uh, the Transparency International Steering Group on Business Principles for Combating Bribery, the Board of Directors of the Revenue Watch Institute, and others. Uh, Karina holds an MBA in International Finance from Columbia University in New York, uh, a bachelor's degree in Political Economy from the University of Toronto, and a diploma in Italian translation and interpretation. She will be doing her own translation today. Um, the, uh, uh, thank you, Karina. Over to you. Thank you. Is this on? Okay, good. Thank you very much. Um, uh, just a couple of words about why I'm here. I, uh, I have worked for 15 years at FNC, which is a mid-sized investment management company, and although I have just recently left, my comments here uh, continue to reflect the positions that FNC has taken publicly in, 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 in submissions that are available on our website. So what I will say today certainly holds for the organization that I worked for for 15 years. Um, our perspective, I say our because it's FNC. It's also, I think, uh, a number of investors that I've worked with over the years, and in particular when I served on the uh, Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative Board for nine years, where we brought together literally 75 uh, in asset managers, pension funds, um, and other investment institutions behind the basic uh, premise that transparency in the extractive sector is something that is not just good for all the reasons that you heard Barbara outline to you in terms of what's right, what promotes the fairness, what promotes values, what promotes um, stable societies. It's also essential to um, stabilize and enhance investment returns. So our perspective on this whole debate is the impact that transparency has on driving economic returns. Barbara talked, she said one thing um, besides um, all of her uh, comments on what is right and fair, and she said we need growth. And certainly from the investment perspective, certainly in the, in the, in the context of the uh, financial crisis that Sean outlined, growth is absolutely essential to lift us out of the uh, recessionary environment in which we now operate. Now, one thing to bear in mind from the, from the perspective of investors is that we hold shares in companies. That's what we do, shares in companies, but also bonds, and also sovereign bonds. Right, so we invest in Rio Tinto, we invest in BHP Billiton, who's in the room, we invest in all the oil and gas companies, we invest in banks, we invest in literally thousands of different companies across the spectrum. We also invest in the debt of Ghana, uh, the debt of Venezuela, the, the debt of Botswana, etc. And all of these different securities sit in your portfolios and you're going to live on this when you retire. 
Now, if we as investors take the view that we're going to look in a very, very granular way at how each individual company is poised to compete, we're going to re reproduce the very behavior that led us over the cliff and into the financial crisis. And the reason for that is that we as investors historically have been overly focused on each individual tree and lost sight of the forest. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, and I've been, you know, it's interesting how sometimes companies in the context of these discussions on transparency have struggled to understand why the investor perspective is sometimes aligned with the corporate perspective and sometimes not. Um, I would say we are entirely aligned with the corporate perspective when it comes to the view that Janine, I think, laid out excellently just now, which is that if a business operates in an environment that is not transparent and that leads through the opacity that we see in societies to what we saw uh, ripping across the Arab world right now, um, the conflict, the violence, the destruction of economic assets, that hurts our returns, our returns in Eni, for example, the Italian oil company that is the largest producer in Libya, were compromised during the Libyan crisis. Um, but if we also think about our investments um, across all of our portfolios that depend on stable and stable uh, commodities markets um, and the ability to invest in a wider range of, of uh, investment opportunities besides just each individual company, then what a company does in its own sector, what Rio Tinto does in Madagascar, has an impact on our ability to invest in other, in other uh, opportunities in those markets. I'll give you an example. Uh, we invest, let's say, I'll take the example of Rio Tinto, which is a good one. We also invest in plantations that are operating in those countries. I say we, the investor community. We also hold the bonds of Madagascar. If Madagascar behaves in a, if the government of Madagascar adopts certain transparency practices that are going to lead to a safer and a more stable and better ruled environment, our, our opportunities to invest in that country are going to be vastly enhanced. It might result in the individual returns that accrue to Rio Tinto being somewhat lower than they might otherwise have been. I'm sorry, I don't mean to suggest that Rio Tinto profits from corruption. That's not my point. My point is simply that um, transparency in the extractive sector can sometimes lead to ups and downs in, in the returns. But what will also happen is that our ability to invest in banana plantations and bonds in Madagascar and so forth are going to be Going to be are going to far exceed any potential loss that we might have incurred through shrinking returns in, in the in the extractive sector. So we look at this not just in terms of co individual companies benefiting from a more stable environment. We look in the round at our at the impact on portfolios generally. If you think about the financial crisis, um, investors were wiped out uh, in terms of their holdings in a number of banks. I mean, share prices collapsed by 90% in some cases. But what also happened is that the deterioration in the banking sector pulled down with it tens, hundreds of thousands of companies and impacted investment returns across the board. And that's where investors really, really suffered. So beyond just their holdings in, in, in the shares of banks is their investment across the spectrum. I'm going to take a couple of minutes to walk you through our specific thinking on se uh, Section 1504 of the Dodd-Frank Act the provision that compels 
oil and mining companies to disclose their payments to governments. This is a complete game changer as far as we're concerned because it establishes a standard of disclosure that if that's where it stops, it is going to create uh, potentially differentials in terms of what companies are required to do in one market versus another. In other words, a company that is listed on a U.S. stock exchange is going to be held to higher standards of disclosure than would be the case with its competitor that is not listed in the U.S. However, and I think the reason that we're all here today, um, if that standard of disclosure is replicated in other major markets, the European Union, Canada, Hong Kong, um, the UK, of course, uh, and other markets in, uh, in Australia, then, then we address, we, re we remedy the problem of, um, of unlevel playing field. From our perspective, this is a positive thing. Certainly the standard that has been established by the, by, um, by the Dodd-Frank Act, Section 1504, um, enables that, that, re that requisite level of transparency to be established so that better practices can emerge and companies can compete fairly in individual markets. And we want to see that same standard replicated in these, in these other major listing venues where extractive companies seek capital. Um, I'd like to turn to um, a couple of um, issues that have been highlighted as areas of concern within the context of this law. One of the areas that um, um, has been cited is the discrepancy between what is, what is established in local law versus what is established by six, Section 1504. This is something that companies get caught between on a regular basis when they operate in multinational jurisdictions. We see this as something that just is par for the course when one operates in many different countries and something that has to be resolved um, through um, the types of um, diplomatic engagement that um, goes on routinely whenever there are discrepancies of this type. We certainly don't see it as a reason not to introduce uh, higher standards of transparency. Another uh, concern that I think is, is valid that has been expressed is the risk that when levels of transparency are increased suddenly, um, one can expect social unrest. I mean, we certainly have seen this in, um, in Bolivia, in Venezuela, in a number of countries where suddenly uh, when the population becomes aware of the payments that extractive companies are, are making to government, that raises expectations about what is going to be done with that money. It also raises expectations about what more companies could be paying. And this is exactly the type of concern that companies and investors alike have had about the impact of transparency on profitability. It's something that, it's a real concern that we have to acknowledge. It's also not a reason not to be transparent, because if you aren't transparent, all you do is you store up problems for later when transparency, which is inevitable, bursts onto the scene. So I think the issue really that we have to acknowledge, and this is something that I think a number of companies accept, is that transparency is something that only has one direction and it's forward. There's no such thing as rolling back and moving to a world when information of this importance can be kept under wraps. And so I think um, certainly from our perspective, this is something that we see as inherently part of the landscape as we, as we look at investment markets going forward. Um, the other really important thing is that companies, um, 
Companies face a lot of expense uh, when they have to comply with different sets of legislation. It is absolutely essential that whatever disclosure standards are introduced in terms of timing, audit standards, granularity, format, etc., adhere to one single standard or at a minimum that um, there be mutual recognition between different jurisdictions so that companies are not forced to you know, produce five or six different reports to satisfy five or six different um, regulatory agencies, and that's absolutely essential. So I think in the context of looking at um, new, new sets of regulation in different, in different markets, we've certainly been very clear that given that the United States took the first step, it is really important that other jurisdictions work as, as hard as possible to emulate those standards and achieve a common global standard of disclosure. And I think I'm going to wrap up with um, the question of material versus de minimis. There's been a lot of talk about what is um, an appropriate standard of disclosure. And the term material, of course, is, is, a, is a standard concept in accounting. It's very important from our perspective as investors to distinguish between information that is decision critical to make an investment decision, in other words, I am looking at the stock of ExxonMobil. Is this piece of information going to induce me to buy more or less of that stock? That's one set of uh, data that um, has an impact on the decision that I will make today in investing in that stock. But there's another level of disclosure that I, as an investor, depend on. It's not going to make me buy or sell ExxonMobil stock but is still necessary from my perspective, and that is the information that is going to contribute to uh, efficient markets and optimal wealth creation. That is the information that civil society will use um, in order to act as the set of checks and balances that make an economy work properly. So when you hear people talk about material information, people have a different sense of what constitutes material. It would be a misstatement for investors to, to suggest that every single last bit of information is going to be used in an investment decision today or tomorrow. That's not the point. The point is that this information is necessary to the overall investment environment. Make it healthy so that we as investors can then invest in healthy companies. All right, I'm going to close here. And uh, I guess maybe one final comment, um, coming back to, I think, what uh, a lot of what Janine has, I think, said very articulately, there are companies out there that have been um, very forceful in calling for better standards of transparency, and I think that's really to be commended. What I would like to really um, highlight to you is one example that I find remarkable, and that is in Canada, my place of birth, um, the Mining uh, Trade Association has teamed up with uh, Publish What You Pay Canada, which is a you know, an anti-corruption civil society group together to call for the Canadian government to introduce legislation that replicates Dodd-Frank. I've never seen that kind of activity before. I think it's absolutely remarkable that in an instance like this you have a trade association from industry working hand in glove with civil society to bring about high standards of transparency. And now you see Canadian investment institutions joining in to back that kind of, of action. So I think this is really indicative of the world that we're moving into, where different parties, for various different reasons that suit their particular agenda, find a common purpose in establishing higher standards of transparency. Thank you very much. Dermot. 
He spent three years uh, during that time on the board of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative and a year, and I think this was his last year, uh, uh, as Europe advisor for Global Witness, traveling regularly to Brussels where he was pushing the case uh, there for a revisit of the Transparency Directive. Uh, he is now, um, has the life many of us uh, wish for. He works from home and thinks deep <laughs> thoughts. Uh, he is an Open Society Fellow, uh, and he is currently researching the impact of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative in Liberia and a country close to my heart, East Timor. Dermot. Thank you. It's on. Great. Well, I, I don't normally get up before midday, as uh, children, <laughs> but uh, since, since for, the, for this event, I couldn't resist. Um, yes, um, I thought that, uh, that, that what I'd do um, to follow on from these three excellent presentations, apart from pausing to, to, to thank our hosts for the chance to talk, was to go back, go back a little bit in history and look at how, how we'd come to this particular point. And I'm going to talk exclusively about the extractive industries, which have a very specific politics, as you know, but um, there may be some sort of general lessons that we can draw for transparency in other parts of the economy. Um, I mean, the, the, the point I came to Global Witness was, um, uh, was a, September 2003, which was shortly after this movement for disclosure of payments to governments by extractive companies had begun. What had happened is that sort of if you want to put it very schematically, um, obviously after the, the, the end of the Cold War, there'd been uh, open investment possibilities and opened up in a lot of countries, and there was an expectation that pro-market and liberal policies and foreign investment would, would drive growth in, um, in a lot of countries where it had previously been difficult to get in. And then gradually there was a realization that quite a few countries, particularly those which are dependent on natural resources, that this wasn't happening. You might get growth, but it was very unbalanced. Great deal of corruption, conflict, instability, the formula wasn't working. And from that arises this concern about governance, how institutions are managed, how the relationships between corporations and governments are managed, or the way that governments manage money becomes important. Um, and in the extractive industries at that time, the, the, the context was that you could get relatively little reliable information on the most basic of questions, which is extractive companies operating in a country, how much money does that country receive from extraction? The most basic fundamental question, you might have some, some budget numbers, but they would be totally unreliable. It was clear that a lot of, in a lot of countries, a lot of money was simply just disappearing in one way or another. So there was a very, very basic problem of not being able to answer that question, without which all other questions are, you know, are essentially meaningless. You can't have an intelligent discussion about the value of the resource to the country if you don't know what it's worth to the country. Um, so you also, in a lot of countries, there was very little scope to talk about these things in public. Civil society activists or journalists who spoke about corruption could, in a lot of cases, expect to be persecuted or censored or marginalized. Um, so the first sort of step towards trying to address that was the Publish What You Pay civil society campaign, which came into being in 2002. And this started out very much as a northern movement. It was based, groups based in the UK and US, but then sort of spread outwards. And from that idea came the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. Um, now, Karina sort of rather underplayed her part in this, but she was one of the half dozen people who, uh, I would say, played, but probably made this happen by her role in bringing in institutional investors to support the EITI. So, I mean, very, very influential. Uh, the EITI is a strange beast. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about its mechanics, which are very peculiar. But basically, what happens is that a country, a government, 
joins the EITI and then is required to ensure the publication of revenue payments from extractive companies. The companies must disclose their payments, the government must disclose its receipts, the two sets of numbers are, are, are checked by an independent third party and then published. And this is done under the auspices of a multi-stakeholder group which is government, uh, government, civil society and the private sector. That's how at different times Karina and I came to be sitting on the board of the, of the EITI. <laughs> Um, now, the, the EITI was always, um, was always a political compromise. The principle of transparency has been accepted, I think, you know, across the corporate world and in, in, in the world of development for quite a long time now. There are very few people who will stand up and say, no, transparency is, has no value. But the, the real argument, which has been going on for about 10 years now, is what that word means. What information should be disclosed, by whom, under what circumstances. And so the EITI was kind of a political compromise. Um, the forms of reporting, what had to be reported and how the information could be gathered together before reporting, how the standards would be applied were, were essentially compromises within the EITI between the different uh, stakeholders. And that took a very long time. So you started with... Um, you started with principles, which are sort of motherhood and apple pie, you know, transparency is good, corruption is bad, growth is good. Um, and then minimum criteria for what kind of reports there should be then very specific rules and a structure, which is the EITI board, to oversee it. All of that took a very, very long time. It took a lot of negotiation. And then the rules had to be tested and applied. And what was to be done in the case of governments which hadn't met the rules? And that was a, a very sticky um, discussion that we had to have a, a couple of years ago. Um, so now the EITI has got to a point where there's kind of a critical mass of countries which are implementing it. Uh, it's supported by quite a few other countries. It's supported by a lot of large corporations. Um, now there's an internal discussion about how to extend what's already been done. Because the problem at the moment is that the EITI rules are quite loose. So the form of transparency that you get, you get data which is often late. It's of very variable quality. Um, in some cases, it's actually aggregated together. So you have a situation where all the companies will pull their data before it's published, which I find strange. But that's, that's again, that's, that's, that's the situation in some countries. So there are all sorts of um, questions about what more it should report on and how it should measure its own effects, which are being negotiated now. Um, at the same time, we have um, the reinforcement of the EITI approach in law, section 54, sorry, 1504 of Dodd-Frank, which, as Karina says, is a game changer and is now being emulated in the European Union. And I'm not going to preempt the next panel, which should be quite fun, but you, there's a kind of a, there's a ding-dong, a transatlantic ding-dong going on over the, between these two regulations, between people who want them to be quite extensive and people who want them to be very limited. And I don't, you don't get any prizes for getting who's on which side. Um, so, so again, it's that the principle of transparency is accepted by all, but when we get down to the nitty-gritty of what does this mean, who discloses what, when, um, and that's, that's always a, a really a kind of a, a political question. I would say, as Karina pointed out, the landscape is moving towards more transparency is better, but, but every, every single step requires constant sort of negotiation and argy-bargy between the different interests. Um, so what does this all add up to? Um, well, as I said at the beginning, I mean, the fundamental question, if you're looking at the extraction of natural resources, not... I mean, it's, it's important for investors, but I'm going to look at it from the perspective of citizens in a country which is producing the resource, is what is this actually worth? And this is the basic question which makes other questions possible, which is now starting to be answered. As I say, the information we have at the moment is selective, it's quite ropey, uh, it doesn't apply. So in some cases, the ITI information is quite good, in others it's not. 
It, uh, it doesn't uh, apply to all countries because governments have to choose to join it. So I think that putting, putting this approach of disclosure into regulation in the world's two biggest markets is, and hopefully in due course in, in other ones and eventually in China, um, is, I have to check actually, see, China, China's probably the world's second, second biggest market now, isn't it? It's bigger than the European Union. Um, but not in terms of listed companies. Not in terms of listed companies. Oh, okay, I'm safe. Uh, <laughs> I've been away from the front line for a while. So um, I think that, that having that principle cemented in regulation, it makes it a lot easier to start talking about all the other things that have to be done to use this information. Because until this point, transparency has been something, this form of transparency has been something that's optional. If the government doesn't want to do it, mm -hmm. they don't have to. And if they do, then there's still a whole lot of discussions about whether the data is going to be any good or not. So I think, I think that, that's an enormous achievement, and I think it will change the way that people talk about natural resources. Um, I think it has the potential to deter bribery. Um, bribery takes all kinds of forms. Um, the, the, what we see now is, um, sort of in certain African countries, what I call grey area payments, where a, a, an extractive company will make a payment which is on the face of it legal, but whose ultimate purpose is open to question. So you, there are ways of structuring a payment. You could even have it written into your contract that you must pay a certain institution. And if you know anything about that country, you rather question how that money is ultimately going to be used. But the company has cover of saying, look, we've got a contract. And due diligence, by the way, is part of this process because there's good due diligence and there's bad due diligence. Good due diligence says, let's find out if it's okay from a corruption point of view for you to make this investment. Bad due diligence, which is very common, says let's find a way to rig this so that you can do it and then when the Justice Department comes knocking on your door, you can say, oh, but it says it in the contract. Or we've structured this in such a way that it's not our fault, Gov. And this is, this is a, a very, very, that the whole notion of due diligence needs you know, very profound questioning, I think, the way in which it's done. Um, I think that the EITI was in danger of getting a little stuck and it's being helped out by regulation by taking transparency further. Um, this subject of project level reporting, which I'm sure will come up in the next panel, meaning that companies disclose in relation to the underlying legal agreements, which typically will relate to a particular geographical area within a country. So you start to bring the numbers <coughs> down from the stratosphere of this much money flowing to the government down to this specific region where the mine is, that mine over there is paying th this much tax to the government, and according to the regulations of your country, your community is therefore entitled to so much coming back again. And very often it isn't coming back again. So I think increasing the kind of the, the specificity of disclosure is a very important step. Um, in some ways, actually, Dodd-Frank Dodd has stepped ahead of the EITI in that way. And the EITI is now going to catch up by providing other kinds of information. So all things considered, um, within the next two, three years, we should have... Um, a much broader, more solid, more reliable sets of information coming out of well, all countries that extractive companies operate in, the US and European extractive companies operate in. And then from that, it's, it's, it's not a golden key. I mean, when you're talking about corruption, you're talking about the way a political system has worked for decades. And, you know, our corporations were quite happy to go along with places like Nigeria and Angola when they were corrupt, and they found ways to deal with that to make a lot of money out of it. Um, you know, we're all terribly polite when we talk about transparency, but there's an awful lot of bad stuff that's gone on in the past, which we've been complicit in, quite frankly, and still are in certain ways. So I think it's, there will be an awful lot of work that will need to be done to unravel some of these nasty complexities. And transparency is only the first step. We can't, you know, think that it's a golden key. But it is what we can do here in the West. It's what we can do. We can regulate our own extractive companies. We cannot rearrange the affairs of other countries. 
but we can tackle our inputs, if you like. And that's what I think is the real significance of the, the EU and Dodd-Frank, in addition to the information they provide, is us finally, instead of sort of patronizing poor countries by explaining why, you know, after years of exploitation, they should run them a bit, like, a bit more like ours, we actually say, well, let's look at what we're doing, and we'll do the bit that we can, which is to increase the flow of information going into these societies. And that's, that's finally, after 10 years of negotiations, starting to happen. I think, it's, I think it's a breakthrough, and it's very, very encouraging. Dermot, thank you very much. Now, we're running a little bit over, uh, but we started late. So uh, we're going to keep you here for a few more minutes uh, before we head to the tea break. Uh, and we're going to throw it open to the floor for some questions. You've got four great panelists here. Fire away. Why don't we start over here? Hello, thank you for your presentation. Just uh, grab the microphone quickly. Thank you for your presentation. It's Khalid Ndim, South Asian Middle East Forum. I'm interested to know how, how American companies are going to deal with the Dodd-Frank legislation when U European companies, for example, don't have to face that at the moment. And it may be considerable time before Britain and countries like France actually put legislation into force. And are there any immediate plans? I don't think there is. So what, what, are, the, what, are, the, what are the pitfalls of... American companies are going to face. I mean, oil I mean, American oil companies like Exxon, Mobil, and ConocoPhillips must be really wondering how they're going to do business in, in places like Africa and the Middle East. Thank you. We've talked a lot about the divergence and closing the divergence. We haven't talked a lot about what you do while you've got a divergence. I guess, Tom, this is one for you to start off with. Um, well, j the uh, Dodd-Bank uh, rules apply, of course, to any publicly traded corporation. Um, that the Security and Exchange Commission um, regulates. Uh, we are such a company. We're traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And so when the rule came out in August, uh, we looked for uh, immediate uh, compliance with it, uh, all the elements of, of that uh, rule. And uh, it will become a routine the next uh, uh, reporting cycle for us. So it's uh, nothing that we see as a huge challenge. We we. Uh, have British companies and French-German companies and all, all of that that are under the tree of the American uh, company, but uh, we are obliged and happily uh, comply with the U.S. Uh, law in that regard. And we would do the same thing if the U.K. Uh, passed such a, uh, a rule or if the European Union passes a rule and we're under their jurisdiction for both the U.K. and all the other uh, companies that we own in the European Union. So um, it's... Uh, an easy decision for us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth bearing in mind that um, a very high proportion of the global non-U.S. extractive companies actually have listing in the United States, so they're covered by this law. It's the smaller companies that escape it, and in fact, this is one of the big motivations for the Canadian Mining Association pushing for Canada to have similar legislation because the larger Canadian mining companies are listed in the United States, so they're, they come under the law, but their smaller Canadian listed competitors don't. Um, and so what I think what you're going to see is um, um, different standards for large companies versus smaller companies, rather than for U.S. versus global, because most of the global, as I say, have some security that's traded in the United States. It may not be their shares, it may be their bonds that are um, registered in the United States, trade in the United States, and therefore fall under the Dodd-Frank provision. So what's interesting to me is that what you could see happen 
is cut small, small extractive companies that might have gone public could conceivably refrain from going public, stay in private hands in order to continue to behave in an opaque way. And then for the larger companies to be tempted to um, partner with them or take a stake in them in their capacity as a non-listed and therefore more opaque com company. So you do have sometimes perverse outcomes that you know, a large, well-governed company would have taken a minority stake in a listed company that now is not going to be listed because of the introdu introduction of this type of law. And the answer lies in making sure that um, rival listing jurisdictions, and the big ones, I mean, there are really four or five. It's basically Canada, Australia, Hong, Hong Kong, still small but growing, and the UK. That's it. Um, there's a risk potentially, I mean, I've heard this said by some of the investment bankers, that if we get too fussy about listing standards, I, I serve on the advisory, um, an advisory body of the London Stock Exchange, and this is a perennial debate. You know, if we get too fussy with our standards, uh, we're just going to drive all those issuers to Bombay. <laughs> you know, no, I don't think so. I just don't think that's going to happen. And in fact, what's really interesting is that the Singapore Stock Exchange recently um, signed a tie-up with the London Stock Exchange um, in the context of lifting its governance and disclosure standards for its issuers because it believed that this was a good way to attract issuers. So really, really, I think more and more um, regulatory bodies, listing venues and, and companies are recognizing that better standards of governance and transparency um, are essential to attracting capital. Janine, Rio Tinto is not listed in the United States uh, as of yet. Can you offer a perspective from that? Well, actually, uh, we're caught because, uh, as Karina pointed out, it's if you have any securities. So it's bonds, uh, and we have, in fact, ADRs issued in the U.S. So we, we will be um, governed by Dodd-Frank. Um, we will also be impacted by any eventual EU legislation. And so I think, um, from our perspective, um, we, we absolutely support um, the underlying principles and why the legislation uh, is put in place, but we don't want to be having to draft um, you know, two or three different sorts of reports. Um, ideally, we'd want to have, um, if you report under Dodd-Frank, that that's good enough for the EU reporting yeah. as well. Dermot, do you want to add? Um, yes, just a couple of ones. The general observation about different jurisdictions, I mean, one always has to start somewhere. You know, we know from the climate change talks that it's very difficult to get a global agreement where everybody, everybody signs and moves forward together. So you have to set the, 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 the precedent, and that's, I think, the significance of these laws. I'd really like to, to endorse um, Karina's point about small companies, which is really the point that if people want to do evil, then they'll, 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 they'll try hard to find a way to do it. And you can never find a regulation which closes every avenue at the same time. It's always iterative. So, for example, um, one phenomenon you see in some African countries is um, the country will have a local content program which is designed to promote indigenous investment in the oil industry, and that's a good thing in itself. But what then happens is that all the local companies are owned by cronies of the, of the rulers, and they then get a free ride in one way or another on, on, on a foreign investment. So they'll, they'll get a license through what might even be a bidding process, and then they'll go out and find a foreign investor to come in and do the work. And the foreign investor will bring the capital and the know-how, and the local company will sort of free ride on the license. They might even get a bank loan from another bank controlled by the ruling elite and then use that to pay their share even. But ultimately, they're getting a free ride on the, on the efforts of the foreign investor. And um, that, there's one particular case in Angola that both... 
both Global Witness and the Financial Times have, have, um, have, have written on, which is a, a small American company which did precisely this. And the Financial Times revealed that the local company, which we, we, Global Witness, we tried to find out who was behind the local companies and couldn't. The Financial Times managed to demonstrate that it was in fact the head of the state oil company who is responsible for allocating licenses. And he had some sort of piece of legal sophistry which he presented to explain why he thought that wasn't corruption. This, this particular case is actually being investigated in the United States and I think it will be a test case for the ability of law enforcement authorities to look at, uh, I'm not going to cast judgment, what may be, unless otherwise explained, we are in Britain, the home, home of the libel law, uh, and which may, unless otherwise explained, be attempts to do end runs around legislation, whether it's anti-corruption legislation or transparency legislation. And you will see this also with this ding-dong we're going to hear about, about the content of Dodd-Frank and the EU regulation. There is an attempt to insert into this legislation certain wording which will create loopholes. And this is, this, is, this is the nature of the game. And I think we just have to be robust about what is the ultimate purpose of the regulation, whether it's transparency or anti-corruption. What is the ultimate purpose? And if people can simply create a kind of workaround using offshore companies or, or, or other forms of secrecy, then we have to recognize that and work against it. But the process is iterative. You don't get everything in one go. That Angola piece was by Tom Burgess, uh, yeah. who unfortunately couldn't be here this morning. Uh, the, there was a question at the front here. Yeah. Rod from the Industry Forum. There is another aspect to transparency, which is that a kind of balance sheet or deposit transparency rather than revenue, um, which is something like an estimate of $21 trillion meant to be held in tax havens. Mm. And not all of that got there transparently. And uh, some of it comes from multinationals and some is held on a multi-year basis. Now, most of these tax havens are actually governed by the UK or US or, or Western countries. So my, my proposal is what, why don't we insist on ultimate full beneficial ownership of these deposits being made public? Yes. Because it would actually catch the governments, the multinationals and individuals all together. And it's another way of looking at it. It's another way of reconciling where the, where the revenue is going and would give us years of content for the Financial Times. Uh, um, uh, Janine, as a tax expert on the panel, do you want to tackle that one? Yes, well, I, I think um, that's being tackled um, through the exchange of information agreements um, that um, pressure has been brought to bear um, by many of the G20 on their treaty partners um, that effectively um, if they don't sign up to these sorts of information exchange agreements that basically pass that type of information to the tax authorities, that they um, will no longer uh, benefit from tax treaty benefits. So a, a turning of the screw, if you like, in, to encourage um, compliance. Um, so it's not public knowledge, it's only um, to tax authorities? That's right. Yeah, I, I would add, I mean, this is one of the... First of all, I completely agree with you. I, I think it would be absolutely um, fantastic if that type of information were made available. It's certainly something that I know in anti-money laundering departments of the uh, major investment banks. This is what the AML professionals are constantly demanding of their banker colleagues to get as a, as a condition of, of, you know, sort of ticking all the boxes in, in the due diligence of, of any kind of deal. But that's probably the single hardest thing to achieve, typically because the owners of these companies, companies that are going public for the first time, for example, 
or companies that are seeking loans don't want that information out. Sometimes they have what I suppose could be regarded as perfectly legitimate reasons, which is they're worried that the government is going to steal it from them. You know, we're looking at situations in Russia, for example, where anybody who's doing too well attracts too much attention and winds up in the wrong place. So, you know, it, it's one can understand why um, certain individuals would want to shield their 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 uh, their assets. They're worried about per personal safety, the safety of their children. But the bottom line is that it really, really um, poisons the quality of business dealings because nobody knows exactly um, what lies behind the purported client. And it's a bad thing for banks. It's a bad thing for investors when they're when when they're investing in listed companies. I think one of the areas of pressure that we see as investors is to push um, stock exchanges and um, and um, financial regulatory agencies to establish higher standards of disclosure as a condition for um, being listed, or certainly in the case of something like the London Stock Exchange, as a condition for being included in the premium segment of the London Stock Exchange and therefore having a, a chance to be included in the FTSE 100 index, which is a passport to having you know, huge interest from the investor community. Now, we're running about 15 minutes over, but there's a couple more questions out there, and uh, I think the tea will stay warm. Uh, should we keep going? Everyone okay with that? Yep. Uh, at the back there. Hi, yeah, Dominic Eagleton from Global Witness. Um, my question is, um, does the panel think that uh, companies and investors will start to push for the replication of Dodd-Frank um, and EU directive type transparency rules into emerging markets such as China and India, for example? That's a very good question. Uh, should we, it would be kind of too easy to start with Dermot, he's formerly a global witness. Should we start with Janine? Um, well, I think from a company perspective, our interest really is having a level playing field. So whilst um, uh, I'm not sure that we'd be um, uh, lobbying um, in a very public way for, for putting that kind of pressure on, on other emerging markets, certainly we have an interest to make sure that we can compete on a level playing field with Chinese companies, with Russian companies, et cetera, et cetera. I'll throw it to Tom in, 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 in a second here, but I um, immediately thought of uh, a conversation I had last week with Gary Silverman, who is our U.S. news editor, uh, who uh, is just back from a trip to China, someone who had worked in Asia for many years uh, and was just back from China. And he was telling me the wonderful story of visiting a company uh, whose name I don't know, so I am... Um, uh, 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 but uh, it's a fun story. Uh, a room full of journalists sits down with a, a director at a Chinese company, and he proceeds to tell them how he is planning to buy and sell stock in the company ahead of an announcement that they're going to make uh, in just a few weeks' time, and that, in fact, he would recommend that they all do the same. Uh, the, um, now, that just stuck with me as a complete... Uh, and this was a, a, a legit and I believe a listed company, uh, the, as, as a great example of just the disparity in governance. And I think sometimes we forget uh, just how wide that disparity is. Tom. Well, Sean, that, that point is exactly why I listed uh, some of these precursor actions that have to go in hand with or in advance of transparency. The first one is defining responsible behavior because to those of us uh, working in Europe or working in North America, 
we have a pretty good definition of uh, where the where the lines are. Uh, the new guidance is helpful, but when we do go to um, other countries, um, they have worked for decades uh, and decades uh, under a different regime, and what might be the norm to them is totally unacceptable uh, to us, and, and that's part of the education process and engagement process that one has to go through. I'll simply uh, echo what uh, what was said uh, by the colleague on my right about uh, uh, setting up similar rules in China or India. We, we work in both places, have a couple thousand people in those regions. Um, uh, we would hope that the rules, when they're set up, that they're constructive and coordinated and consistent um, and uh, eliminate uh, duplicate uh, processes and more, more and more uh, bureaucratic burden. Uh, clearly, the importance uh, of transparency is more important than some bureaucratic burden, but it helps companies such as us if it is, uh, if it is consistent, if, if in fact we reach the thresholds that do require uh, reporting. I would observe one thing. Um, there are some countries out there, several, but one in particular where this issue is really intractable, and that's Russia. We have a great opportunity, which is Russia is currently in the process of applying to become a member of the OECD. And I was talking recently to somebody at the OECD who was um, bemoaning the fact that when they let in um, Slovenia two years ago, they missed an opportunity to establish sufficiently tough standards on governance and transparency. And now it's too late. There's no more leverage. Um, so this is, we are now, we do have an opportunity to press for much, much tougher standards when it comes to things like this as a condition of allowing Russia to join the OECD. It already made it into the WTO, and that was a big, big, big issue. Um, there's a lot less attention being paid, funnily enough, to its um, accession to the OECD, and I think that's an area where we should be paying attention. Dermot, I don't want to freeze you out. <laughs> well, just a very brief um, comment, which is that the debate has changed. Uh, when I was first started going to Brussels, uh, coming up to two years ago, um, and the case we were making for transparency was essentially a development case. And what's happened, obviously, to state the obvious in the meantime, and as Sean alluded to at the beginning, is it's become a domestic political issue in the UK and a number of other countries. When money's short, the idea of all these funds sort of swirling unaccountably around in tax havens instead of coming here to pay for schools and roads and so on has become a very live political issue. And it's, that's, I think, that sort of transforms the possibilities because suddenly electorates are starting to ask... Um, what's going on with this system. And in China, for instance, there's, of course, it's not just a question of convergence with global standards, that they have, a, they have an enormous problem of illicit financial flows out of the country. Now, I've no, not, no expert on China and no idea of how they, how they see that issue, but it is known, and presumably in China as well, if money starts to become tight, um, it, will, it will become an increasing concern for them as well. It's pragmatic, in other words. It's not an ideological concern. Mm -hmm. there, if there ain't enough money, Governments have to do what they can to hold on to, 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 to taxes that should be paid rather than letting this kind of thing go on. So I think that's also a kind of a sea change in the way people look at taxation. There are a couple more questions out there in the front here, second row. Um, this might be beyond the scope of the discussion, but I am curious that if you are able to, as, as a group, come together and decide what these rules are uh, globally, do you think that there's an added measure of the punitive side that, that might be the challenge of what happens to these companies that violate these agreed upon rules that for throughout these countries in different areas that the punitive side is going to be your challenge that may prevent companies like in the U.S. to come over and do business? 
I just don't know that side of the argument, which is, okay, we agreed to do it, we'll play nicely, but then what happens if we don't? Dermot, do you want to take that? It depend on the issue. I mean, in the case of in the case of if, if 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 in the case of corruption, if transparency shows that there's something questionable about a corporate payment, then it follows that it should be a violation or potentially a violation of anti-corruption laws. And the on paper, the anti-corruption laws have been quite strong. But until recently, it was only it was only really the United States which enforced its Foreign Corrupt Practices Act with any with any vigor at all. And you know, it's it's hard to measure these things from the outside. But anecdotally, you would pick up people saying that the FCPA was a big deal for American companies because you get busted. All right, you can do this deferred prosecution agreement where you don't actually get convicted, but you have to pay out fines which are coming up into the low billions of dollars. Uh, sometimes management has to go, you have uh, corporate monitors going over your books for three years. So actually the prospect of being prosecuted under the FCPA um, does seem anecdotally to have, to, to have been a factor on US-based companies. Europe is woefully behind. Um, we now have quite a good bribery law in the UK, which they're just starting to enforce. But of course the punitive element has to be there when there's an element of criminality. But there's, again, a question of political will. Um, law enforcement authorities will always make, they may not admit this, but in practice they, make, they have scarce resources and so they will make essentially political decisions about which sectors, which companies to go for, about when to settle. So the punitive measures as far as corruption goes do exist, but the question of whether they're applied, again, is, is political. And the US, I think, has done way, way more than all the other industrialized jurisdictions that I know of. I wouldn't be doing my job as moderator if I didn't uh, get us into a coffee break quickly, but there was one more question there, and we'll just do it very quickly over on the side there. Um, I think, uh, shout. Yeah. Uh, Michael Warhurst from Friends of the Earth. Uh, we've actually recently started a campaign looking at responsibility issues regarding tin mining in Indonesia, make it better, and uh, linking up the supply chain to the, the mobile phone suppliers. Mm. I think there is another issue that's come out on this issue of how we get responsibility. There's partly a supply chain issue, but you mentioned the issue of small companies. There's also the issue of private companies. Correct. And I'm aware that the, it's being suggested that the Commission proposal, the European Commission proposal on company reporting in the more general sense that comes out in the first quarter of next year, should actually call for reporting by private companies as well as listed companies. I know this is going to be an area of debate, Let's ask the publicly listed companies. Um, Janine, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, there are some very large um, privately owned um, extractive companies, um, and um, consistent with our desire for a level playing field, I think I think we'd welcome um, those companies having to report to the same standards. Tom. Um, I'll just comment that in addition to that, um, if, uh, if we are the prime uh, contractor in, uh, or consultant in a contract in a country, um, we, we retain the services of a small or a privately held company um, as uh, under our contract, we feel obliged that, that uh, they do have to comply with the rules because it flows up through uh, our organization. So uh, in, to that degree, uh, uh, whether they separately report or not is, is a separate issue, but uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't try to separate them from the responsibilities of the reporting by having them as a, as a sub. 
think Karina has Yeah, there's another thing to remember, which is that small extractive companies, be they in oil or, or mining, typically their business model depends on their being um, attractive to larger companies as a joint venture partner and ultimately as a takeout uh, prospect. So you start off, you're prospecting, you're a tiny little company, you're hunting around to find that deposit. Um, you get a 10% stake from one of the larger companies potentially. And then when you find it, you don't have the wherewithal to actually develop it. So you need to sell yourself to a big company. No big company is going to buy you if you've misbehaved. And they know, well, they know that more and more because the bigger companies are making it clear that they don't want to get in bed with badly managed little companies. So there is a, there is a pressure over time for these, better, for these smaller companies to behave properly. And as a former Indonesia hand, I'd love to hear more about tin mining in Indonesia and what you're doing. Uh, well, let's grab some coffee, a uh, quick tea. I think there's uh, a nice spread outside. We'll regather in 10 minutes.